For over 70 years, Oshner has been dedicated to cancer research and new cancer treatment development, bringing innovations to the fight against cancer, including more clinical trials than anywhere else in the region. I'm Dr. Jonathan Mizrahi with the Oshner Cancer Institute. One of the most common complaints I hear from my patients when I first meet them to discuss their cancer diagnosis and treatment plan is that there is a lack of reliable, available information about cancer. Evaluating what is or isn't a credible source of information on the internet is challenging, even for the most experienced of Googlers. We are seeking to fill that gap by providing the public with understandable, reliable information about cancer. Join me as we talk to healthcare experts at Oshner about what you need to know should you or a loved one receive a cancer diagnosis. Welcome to All In Against Cancer. Bladder cancer is the ninth most common cancer diagnosis in the world, and approximately 80,000 new cases are diagnosed in the United States each year. Progress continues to be made in management of early, localized bladder tumors, and also in the treatment of advanced cancer. In this episode of the All In Against Cancer podcast, we talk with Oshner medical oncologist, Dr. Brian Halbert, and urologist, Dr. Roe Arcott, to learn more about the diagnosis and staging of bladder cancer, what treatment options are available to patients, and how to reduce the risk for developing this malignancy. So welcome, Dr. Brian Halbert, Dr. Roe Arcott to the show. Appreciate you uh, gentlemen coming on and talking to me about this very important topic. Thanks so much. Really excited to be here and, and talk about bladder cancer today. You know, it goes a long way to, to be able to spend a little bit of time talking about what we do to patients outside of work so that we can educate our community and, and better the lives of uh, Louisianans. Great. Well, let's just start with a little bit of background on us. So, Dr. Halpert, tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of where your life's taken you, where you're from, and how you got to Oshner. Sure. So I grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, I went to med school at Tulane. Uh, and then I ended up going to, to Boston for about 11 years, from 2011 to 2022. I was at Beth Israel Deaconess for that entire time. I did my medical training there, residency, fellowship. I worked there for a while as well, too. And then uh, my wife uh, met her at an LSU bar up in Boston. Had a couple of kids. Our whole family's still down here in South Louisiana. So she uh, gave me the, the instruction that we needed to get closer to family when COVID came out. So uh, when we said it's time to come back to South Louisiana, I said, all right, well, I'll get a job at Auctioner. And, and here I am. The story of your spouse telling you you need to be living in Louisiana is a familiar one to me. So <laughs> uh, I, I join you in that. It, it has been amazing, though. I mean, I could not be happier with, with, with making the move back down here. Awesome. Well, Obviously, it's my pleasure to work with you, and I've enjoyed it. So, Dr. Arcott, what about you? What's your story? Yeah, so um, I grew up all over. I'm actually from Memphis, Tennessee, but uh, you name a state, and I've, I've lived there. I did uh, my most of my growing years in, in the South, and then I went to uh, New York for my undergraduate degree, and um, from there went back to medical school at the University of Tennessee in Memphis. And um, after that, I went on to do a urologic residency in Detroit at Wayne State University. And then I did a urologic oncology fellowship at Duke. And after I finished at Duke, I was really looking for, you know, an, an academic job, the, the ability to teach, um, do clinical trials and further progress in research in, in urologic oncology. And I came down to Oshner for an interview because my, my wife also wanted to stay in the South, and um, I was just blown away with the opportunity that Oshner 
um, has and the capabilities it has to provide patients with the highest level of care. Um, I think we just have such a great platform in terms of staff, amenities, technology, and and just uh, skill set in terms of of taking care of patients. And so I was quick to take the job, and I've been very happy to be here. So We're certainly happy to have you. And even though I'm, I don't treat a lot of urologic cancers, I know you've been an asset to the team and just appreciate having you on the team. Thank so, you. So I'm going to start with a pretty basic question for you, Dr. Halbert. I want you to tell me just when we're talking about bladder cancer, what is it? What are, what are we even talking about? Sure. So when most people talk about bladder cancer, what they're referring to is a cancerous growth of the innermost lining of the bladder. It's called the urethelium. Uh, as a result, you may hear doctors or other medical professionals refer to this as urothelial cancer. Um, and the urothelium, or this, this lining of the bladder, actually runs all the way from the urethra up into the bladder. Um, and then it also runs up through the tubes that connect the kidney to the bladder. So you can actually develop a urothelial cancer anywhere along this urinary tract. Most of the time, um, we're thinking about it forming in the bladder. And I think we'll, we'll focus most of our attention here today on, on the bladder urothelial carcinomas or cancers. There are a couple other different types of bladder cancer other than urothelial cancers that arise from different cells within the bladder. Sometimes we see cancers arising from the, the muscle cells in, in the bladder, or we see cells that are more gland-forming cells or that look more like skin cells. These would be squamous cell carcinomas or adenocarcinomas. So there are a couple other variants that may be treated you know, somewhat differently than what we'll talk about here today, but the, the run-of-the-mill kind of standard bladder cancer we talk about is this urothelial carcinoma. Okay, great. So, yeah, we'll probably use that a little bit interchangeably here, urothelial carcinoma used to be called transitional cell carcinoma, but we won't really talk about that today, and, and bladder cancer kind of interchangeably. Okay, Dr. Arcott, let me ask you, what are some risk factors that we understand can predispose someone or make it more likely they would develop bladder cancer? Yeah, sure. So there's certainly a number of different risk factors associated with the, the development of bladder cancer. I mean, number one, it's an age-dependent disease. I mean, it's certainly as we age, things go wrong in the division of cells within our body that end up forming these cancers that we were talking about. And, and um, cancer is anything, and I try to describe this to patients, that's anything inside the body that grows faster than it should, which is why it forms a tumor um, and has the potential to move around the body, which is when it you know has the ability to do bad things to us. Um, certainly the number one risk factor other than age that we know for bladder cancer is cigarette smoking. Um, the use of tobacco is linked primarily to the development of bladder cancer with a two to six fold increase over the general population. We know that um, the majority of people who do smoke actually don't realize this fact. Up to 50% of them don't, and as a result, continue to use tobacco and, and you know end up with this potential disease state. We do know that those who do quit smoking do have a decreased risk, and that risk actually decreases after just one year of stopping. So mm. we certainly really encourage our patients and people that we see to consider tobacco cessation and you know counsel them about various opportunities for doing that. There are certainly other risk factors like environmental exposure and occupational exposures. So people who work in the hair industry who use a lot of dyes, factory workers, leather workers, textile workers, these kinds of individuals are certainly at increased risk. There's also some increased risk associated with potential radiation exposure to the bladder, um, as well as risk of certain chemotherapeutic agents that have been used for other disease states like cyclophosphamide. So, you know, if these are things that you've been exposed to, you might be at a higher risk. 
And then lastly, there are some genetic mutations that have been associated with bladder cancer. Um, these are now considered germline mutations. There are lots of tests out there and, and the ability to find out if you're one of those individuals. And so in the event that you have a long family history of cancer or multiple members in your family history um, that have had colon or breast or other cancers, it might be important to you to get some genetic testing. And lastly, um, I guess one of the biggest syndromes that we associate with bladder cancer is, is Lynch syndrome. Um, which I know you're very familiar with. Um, and Lynch syndrome is often associated with colon cancer and um, endometrial cancer, but there's also a significant risk in, in the bladder cancer state. We haven't yet been able to define the exact number um, of increased risk, but we know the incidence is probably about 10 years younger in, in the formation of bladder cancer and, and certainly uh, maybe a little bit higher predominance in females. Great. So I think that was very well summarized. And Obviously, we know some of these risk factors exist. Um, certainly, cigarette smoking is very well established. And a lot of people, fair to say, we don't know why they developed it, right? As you get older, uh, certain things don't work as well in your body, and cells misbehave, and you can develop tumors. Uh, so I think it's fair to say a lot of our patients, we don't know why they developed it. Absolutely. All right, Dr. Arcott, another question for you. You know, a lot of cancers we discuss, certainly breast cancer, we think colon cancer, to a certain extent, prostate cancer. We talk about screening, Okay. Things, testing we can do on patients who don't have any symptoms, even patients who may not have any risk factors, to see if we can detect this at an early stage. What is the role, if there is any, of screening in bladder cancer? Yeah, that's a great question. The problem with bladder cancer, as we've, we've stated, is, you know, smoking is probably the number one risk factor and certainly some environmental exposures, but these are not absolute. If you smoke or if you're exposed to some kind of hair dye or textile dye, doesn't mean you're going to get bladder cancer. We've looked at ways of testing urine for bladder cancer, and what we've found is that most of these tests are just not specific or sensitive enough, meaning at times they may find cancer, but other times they may produce false positives or false negatives and ultimately leading to inaccuracies in the diagnosis. So there really isn't a good screening method. The majority of people that come to my clinic with a diagnosis or an evaluation for potential bladder cancer are really coming in because they either had blood in their urine on an examination, um, so they didn't actually see the blood, but they had a test done and they said there was blood in the urine, um, and that's usually called a microscopic urine analysis, or they had an event where they actually physically saw blood in the urine in the toilet, and um, those are really the, the driving factors, um, but otherwise there really aren't specific screening tests that we use routinely in the in the clinical setting. Great. So that actually flows nicely into my next question here, which is for you, Dr. Halbert. What are the common signs and symptoms, if any, for patients uh, who do have a diagnosis of bladder cancer? Yeah. So as Dr. Arcott was just mentioning, the, the classic symptom that we tend to see is blood in the urine. Um, so I, I'd really urge patients that uh, you know, if you are having blood in the urine, that's something that you shouldn't ignore. Make sure you're you're seeing your primary care doctor about it. Oftentimes, this can be you know attributed to either things like urinary tract infections or you know um, bladder infections. And oftentimes, that can be the case. But it's really really essential that you see your doctor and make sure that that's you know clearing up and being managed appropriately. Uh, especially because oftentimes the the amount of blood might be so small that you can't even see it. Um, so it might only be microscopic amounts of blood and it may not, you know, it can oftentimes not be painful. That might be the only sign that you have a bladder cancer. Um, 
sometimes we can see some patients have some discomfort uh, in the bladder with, with urination, kind of similar to how, you know, women might end up getting or, or people may end up getting, uh, you know, urinary tract infections that can be uncomfortable. You know, you have an, inf an infection that's causing inflammation in the bladder uh, that's uncomfortable. If you have a cancer in the bladder, sometimes that can cause some inflammation and cause discomfort, um, but not all the time. Uh, if we start to see a cancer that's more advanced, you know, if it's starting to spread throughout the body, we may see more generalized symptoms, things like loss of appetite or weight loss. And these are real signs that, that something more sinister is happening and really would warrant, um, you know, a quick evaluation. Great. So I think I'll summarize what you said very eloquently is blood in the urine is a common but not specific symptom. And oftentimes people don't have symptoms or don't even know they have blood in the urine. And then, you know, for more advanced diseases, obviously, then you start seeing stuff like weight loss, maybe pain. Now, let's say a patient has one of these symptoms, has blood in the urine. Oftentimes, they're referred to uh, a urologist like, like yourself, Dr. Arcot. So walk me through how you go about eventually actually diagnosing these patients. What kind of procedures are involved, imaging tests, so on and so forth? Yeah, absolutely. So when patients come to me for an evaluation of blood in the urine, it's for the two reasons we talked about, either blood that they could physically see or blood that they were told was in a urine sample that they submitted for a test. Um, again, they can have some other issues like urgency of urination or frequency or dysuria. But when they come to my clinic, we usually go through a detailed physical history, dis, um, discerning their, their cancer history, their symptoms, how long they've been going on. And we often discuss these laboratory results or the uh, fact that there was gross blood in the urine. Uh, after that, we use a, stress, a risk stratified approach, excuse me, um, based on their age and their risk factors to determine what the next steps need to be. And that's usually some sort of imaging, whether that's a renal ultrasound or a CT scan of the abdomen that can look at the internal organs. And sometimes specific CT scans that look at both the kidneys, the ureters, which are the tubes that connect the kidneys to the bladder, and then the bladder itself. Um, after that, if there really is physically gross blood in the urine, the, the most important probably evaluation is a cystoscopy. Um, and that means looking inside the bladder with a camera. This is usually done in the office. Um, we use a numbing medication to help with the discomfort of passing the small telescope down the urine channel. But really that visual inspection of the urine channel and the bladders is critical to identifying potential bladder tumors that might be located within the urinary tract that are producing either this microscopic blood or gross blood in the urine. So let's say someone has a either a tumor, you're finding something on one of those CT scans or ultrasound, then you do the cystoscopy, you're looking inside. What are you looking for? I mean, obviously something abnormal, but what does a tumor usually look like? And then how do you actually manage it from that point? When we look inside the bladder, the, the inside of the bladder, and I, I describe this, um, and it's probably easiest to be represented as the inside lining of, the, of our mouth. And that's what the inside of the bladder looks like. And when we, we go inside the bladder, we're actually able to inflate it with water that passes through the scope, and that actually allows the bladder to distend. We take a good look around, and what we're looking for are what we call papillary growths. They essentially look like shrubs of urothelium or, or tissue, and so it might it might look like a you know a fleshy mole, so to speak, inside the inside the bladder. Um, once we identify this um, tumor, what we usually do is we tell the patient uh, our observational findings, and we tell them that the best next step in diagnosis is to get a tissue 
um, pathologic evaluation. And so we would take that patient to the operating room and usually under anesthesia do a cystoscopy again. And in this case, we would either biopsy um, or resect or remove this shrub from the inside of the bladder. And that is usually sent to the pathologist who then looks at it under a microscope and can tell us not only the histology, whether that be urothelial bladder cancer or some variant histology, but also the depth of the invasion of this tumor, um, whether it's just superficial or deep. Great. And I think that kind of goes nicely into what we'll talk about next. I just want to say, you know, next time I see my dentist, I'm going to ask if they think of the inside of the mouth looks like a bladder or if it's just vice versa. Uh, <laughs> and if we see any fleshy growths inside. If, the... if your dentist is looking at a lot of bladders, you should get a new dentist. <laughs> <laughs> Point taken. All right. <laughs> Dr. Halbert, I want to ask you a little bit about staging. So Dr. Arkaw was mentioning that when you get this, you, you get these tests, you get these CT scans often, you get this biopsy result, all that goes into the staging. So walk me through on a very basic kind of 30,000 foot level, how we stage bladder cancer and what techniques and methodologies we use. Yeah. So when, whenever a cancer doctor thinks about staging a cancer uh, across most types, we're really thinking about three separate um, kind of categories or three separate things to focus on. First, we think about how, how advanced the tumor itself is. And in the case of bladder cancer, what we're looking for is how deep is the tumor invading into the wall of the bladder. Um, so the, the earliest stage cancers are going to be limited to that inner lining of the bladder. Um, then we start to see tumors that grow deeper into the muscle layer of the bladder, and sometimes they can grow beyond the muscle layer of the bladder or even into, you know, surrounding tissues. The next thing we look at is whether or not the cancer has started to involve nearby lymph nodes. And I think this is something that trips up a, a lot of patients because we talk about lymph nodes a lot in cancer clinics, and it's not always clear what, you know, what they do for most people. I think of the lymph nodes really as, as the storm drains of the body. So if the arteries and the veins are the roads that bring blood to your organs, the lymph nodes and the lymph vessels that connect them are really the storm drains and the sewers that run alongside the roads. So oftentimes, this is one of the first places we will start to see cancer spread whenever it starts to spread. So if on imaging study, we see some of the nearby lymph nodes look like they're involved with cancer, that gives us concern that there might be some regional lymph node involvement. Finally, the, the last piece that we look for is, is for people that have, you know, cancers that we're, we think may be, you know, more advanced. We will do some advanced imaging studies, things like CT scans. Sometimes we can do things like PET CT scans to look to see if there's evidence that the cancer has started to spread beyond the bladder and the nearby lymph nodes into other parts of the body, um, whether it's distant lymph nodes or the lung or the liver. And that would, you know, put you at, at the most advanced stages of cancer. Uh, functionally speaking, you know, when we are treating bladder cancers, we really divide them up into a couple kind of more basic categories, however. Um, we think about early localized bladder cancers that have not yet started to spread into the muscle of the bladder. We think about localized bladder cancers that have started to spread into the muscle of the bladder. And then finally, we think about, you know, bladder cancers that have started to spread throughout the rest of the body. Um, and, and that's functionally the three categories that we treat. Great. That was very well explained, Brian. I think I could probably write a book with all the metaphors that I've heard in this room uh, <laughs> uh, for TNM staging. But I, I like that one a lot, the storm drains. I have to remember what a storm drain is and 
but that's for a different conversation. They're the uh, they're the areas in Lakeview that fill up with water anytime we get more than like an inch of rain, and then you know flood our flood our yard. So New Orleans uh, lymphatic <laughs> channels aren't working properly. <laughs> Unfortunately, not. So you know what Dr. Halbert mentioned, breaking it down into very early bladder cancers. This would be non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Let's focus on that first. So these are kind of the earliest stage of bladder cancers. Dr. Arcot, these are patients that you're seeing um, and really managing um, typically without a medical oncologist. So kind of walk me through what does that mean and what's your approach to these patients? How do you counsel them? What's the prognosis? So on and so forth. So I think the the 3,000-foot view on non-muscle invasive bladder cancer is that it's early bladder cancer that likes to recur but not progress. I think that that's the, the big take-home point. And what does that mean? That means that when we go in with a cystoscope, you know, under general anesthesia and remove this tumor, the fact of the matter remains that it's not likely to spread into the muscle, but it's likely to come back three, six, 12 months later. So what we're really trying to do is um, use a procedure called transurethral resection of bladder tumor to maximally resect the bladder cancer um, beyond the tissue level that it's spread into. So if it's in the you know, first lining of the bladder, we want to make sure that we obtain some muscle in the specimen so that we're getting deep enough to have removed all of the tumor and its quote-unquote roots. And um, after that, we typically have patients um, come to clinic and have um, intravesical or intrabladder installation of chemotherapy. Um, there's chemotherapy, and then there's things like immunotherapy called BCG, and these medicines work to actually prevent recurrence and progression. In the earliest stages, um, again, recurrence is more common than progression. As we get to slightly higher stages that are still considered non-muscle invasive, like T1, for instance, which is not muscle invasive, um, but but in that non-muscle invasive um, state, um, the, the recurrence risk becomes both higher and the progression rate becomes higher. And so, again, even more aggressive about using um, chemotherapy or immunotherapy in the bladder. Um, this is typically done in the office, and usually um, it's done for about six weeks, and that's called our induction phase. And we found that um, if we do a good transurethral resection and we get patients to this intravesical therapy, we can decrease the recurrence risk by about 50%, and progression rates um, in the order of 10 to 20%, um, you know, depending on how well patients respond. So giving that chemotherapy, and to be clear, like you said, this is not chemotherapy through the IV or by mouth. This is just instilling it into the bladder. Correct. Um, you're reducing the chance both that it will come back and potentially reducing the risk that it will progress beyond how advanced it was already. Right. Okay. Yeah, we're trying to prevent um, basically a non-muscle invasive bladder cancer turning into a muscle invasive bladder cancer. Okay. All right. Well explained. Dr. Halbert. Switching into muscle invasive bladder cancer, these are ones that are growing a little bit deeper into that lining into the muscle layer of the bladder. What's our approach to that? Because that's a pretty uh, distinct pathway for these patients. Yeah. So as Dr. Arcot had mentioned, you know, once we have a, a bladder cancer that's starting to go into the muscle layer, we worry much more about that progression that he's talking about. You know, the, the likelihood of the cancer coming back, but also coming back, you know, in a distant spot is much higher. Um, so that is when we start to think about, you know, a, a doctor like myself, like a medical oncologist coming in with additional, um, you know, uh, 
treatments like systemic chemotherapy by, you know, traditionally going into the blood, you know, rather than the, the, the bladder treatments that Dr. Arcot was just talking about. So we have found, um, you know, over the course of the last many years that the addition of chemotherapy um, before bladder surgery um, for muscle invasive bladder cancer reduces the likelihood of the cancer coming back and, and increases the likelihood of the patient surviving bladder cancer. Uh, it's important that we use a particular type of chemotherapy called cisplatin in order to make this you know, as effective as possible. There's two common uh, regimens that are used right now for chemotherapy before bladder surgery for muscle invasive bladder cancer. The, the first one is, is a combination of cisplatin with gemcitabine. Um, we also have a, a more intensive uh, four-drug regimen of uh, cisplatin in combination with methotrexate, vinblastine, and uh, adriamycin. Um, so this is what they call the MVAC regimen. Um, in general, we think that both are effective in reducing the likelihood of the cancer coming back and, and increasing the likelihood of you surviving your cancer after your bladder surgery. I do think that, you know, if, if we have the ability to use the MVAC regimen. A lot of people, you know, would like to utilize that one if possible, um, but it is a little bit more intensive. And then those patients will oftentimes go go towards cystectomy or towards uh, bladder uh, resection with somebody like Dr. Arcot. Whenever we do see patients with muscle invasive bladder cancer, I mean, it really is a is a team based approach at that point. Like you you stated earlier, in the in the non muscle invasive case, you know, the urologist is kind of is the one really driving the ship and, and typically a, a urologic oncologist. And, you know, when we have muscle invasive bladder cancer, my, my first thought is to obviously counsel them about the disease state and, you know, what we're looking at and prognosis and, and therapeutic interventions. But my my next call after that is, is somebody like Dr. Halbert to administer some sort of systemic chemotherapy um, based on the two regimens he was talking about because that really is the um, – is basically throwing the kitchen sink at this. Um, you know, bladder cancer went in the muscles very aggressive and uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy, which is what we call it, prior to radical surgery for the bladder is certainly, um, the, you know, part of the mainstay in the, in the treatment process. Because of how aggressive bladder cancer is when it gets into the muscle, the definitive and gold standard treatment for decades has been removal of the bladder, and that's called radical cystectomy. Um, in that case, we um, can do this surgery both minimally invasive or through traditional open techniques, and um, we remove the bladder. And um, at that point, we also do a lymph node dissection to to take some of these drainage spots that might harbor cancer in them out of the body, as well as um, at this point needing to perform some sort of urinary diversion. Um, the the kidneys still have to drain urine, and they have to drain them somewhere. Um, typically, we fashion a piece of bowel that can drain urine into a bag on somebody's skin, and that's called a stoma. Um, in this case, it's a urostomy. Um, most people are familiar with colostomies, but uh, which are, hold stool in them, but uh, urostomies hold urine and um, function just slightly differently. Um, another way to um, reconstruct the, the drainage of the kidneys is to perform a, a, a neobladder, which is fashioning small bowel into a new bladder that somebody can use to void or urinate through their native urine channel. Um, and, and both of these operations we perform very commonly at, at Oshner and, and um, certainly counsel patients about them. So after they have this potential neoadjuvant or pre-surgical chemotherapy, they have their surgery are people typically done? Is there a role for any more therapy? And, and how do we watch these patients? Dr. Halbert. 
Yeah. So I, I think one of the big advantages or, or an advantage of giving chemotherapy before surgery is it gives us the opportunity to look to see how well that, that treatment worked in, in killing the cancer cells. Um, so we know that, that folks that get uh, this chemotherapy before surgery uh, and then end up going to get the bladder surgery and have, you know, essentially all of the cancer dead uh, on the pathologic specimen from surgery have pretty good prognoses and the, and the likelihood of the cancer coming back is, is relatively low. Now, unfortunately, there are, you know, a, a, you know, there are people that we give chemotherapy to before surgery. Um, we take their bladder out and we still see that the cancer hasn't really been affected by the chemotherapy that, that we gave them. And these people are at higher risk of the cancer coming back. So the, I think the question you're getting at is for these people that are at very high risk for the cancer coming back, is there additional treatment that we can do? Um, and, and one of the more exciting things to come out in bladder cancer over the last you know, couple of years is, is the answer now is yes, there is. Um, there are these um, immunotherapy type uh, approaches that we have um, developed, which have really revolutionized the treatment of metastatic or you know, unresectable bladder cancers. But we have found that for people who um, are at high risk for bladder cancer recurrence after surgery, either they got chemotherapy and they didn't have a response or they didn't get chemotherapy before their bladder cancer surgery for whatever reason, we can give them one year of immunotherapy with a drug called nivolumab, um, and that actually reduces the likelihood of the cancer coming back. Great. And what about patients who, briefly touching on those who are either for medical reasons or, or you know, what have you, unable to undergo either neoadjuvant chemotherapy or, or maybe they can't undergo a cystectomy at all? Are there options for those patients? Maybe the cancer hasn't spread, but they're not medically fit enough to have their urine, uh, their bladder taken out, or maybe they choose not to have their bladder taken out. What do we uh, offer those patients? Yeah. So, uh, you know, this does come up not infrequently where we have, you know, patients who, who are not well enough to undergo uh, surgery for a localized muscle invasive bladder cancer. In those cases, there are times, there, there's select times when we think combinations of a, a maximal TURBT, Dr. Arcot going in there and really getting as much of the tumor out as he can from, from the inside, and then follow that up with a combination chemotherapy and radiation therapy course. In some cases, this can provide equivalent outcomes to uh, chemotherapy and bladder surgery. Right. So I feel like that's probably the only role radiation primarily plays in the average bladder cancer patient is when they're not necessarily a candidate for cystectomy. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's right. The... We, we don't have a radiation oncologist here. <laughs> no, no one's going to argue my point. <laughs> yeah, that would... Um... That would be the the only really um, viable time that radiation is used to to treat bladder cancer. And uh, as as Dr. Halbert said, it is a viable option, and it is something that we tell every patient about. We don't just talk about surgery when we talk about muscle invasive bladder cancer. We we do go through all the options, and certainly um, the use of radiation with chemotherapy and and transurethral resection can be can be a good option for some patients. And certainly there are many nuances to that, and something I encourage all patients to talk to their doctor about. Great. So obviously, you know, and one of the final points we want to talk about today is uh, there's a significant portion of patients who unfortunately, either at the time of diagnosis, don't have a cancer that's resectable because it's already spread, or they have these treatments and unfortunately the cancer can still come back uh, to a point where we don't have something that can surgically be removed. So these are typically what we refer to as stage four metastatic uh, patients or metastatic bladder cancer. Um, so, uh, 
Dr. Halper, since this is really your territory, tell me just briefly, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, what are we able to offer these patients? As you mentioned, we do see these patients uh, frequently. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, without the ability to, to get surgery to remove the entire, you know, cancer from the bladder uh, or in those select cases of radiation, um, you know, we can't expect um, medical treatment with chemotherapy or immunotherapy to cure patients of, of cancer. That said, we do have very effective treatments and um, our options for effectively treating these types of cancers have has vastly uh, improved over the last several years. So traditionally speaking, we think that the, the most active, um, you know, traditional chemotherapy for patients with unresectable or metastatic uh, bladder cancer tends to be platinum-based chemotherapies, whether it's cisplatin or carboplatin. But we have developed these new immunotherapies uh, over the last couple of years that have really revolutionized cancer care, not just in bladder cancer, but across many, many tumor, tumor types. Um, current standard of care um, for, for or a current standard of care for many patients with metastatic bladder cancer is to start with one of these platinum-based chemotherapies um, and usually do that for about six months or so. And then if there is a good response after those six months, we can keep them on maintenance um, immunotherapy with a drug called Avelumab. Um, and this is a very attractive option for many patients. Additionally, for patients who can't receive platinum-based chemotherapy for, for a variety of reasons, uh, or for patients um, who have progressed through these types of, of platinum-based chemotherapies, we can offer um, immunotherapies alone. Uh, usually something like pembrolizumab has been shown to progress or to uh, um, uh, control you know, cancers for periods of time. Afterwards, you know, we, we have further uh, treatments that we've developed uh, later down the line. I know we were thinking about um, sending these tumor types off to look to see what sort of DNA mutations really drive um, the cancer. And there are certain types of um, mutations that we might find in your cancer that we can specifically target with certain pills. A good example of that is, is FGFR mutations can be targeted with a drug called uh, ertafitinib. But probably the most interesting and I think the most active area of management of, of metastatic bladder cancer and probably in the future going to be for earlier stage bladder cancers uh, is an entirely new class of drugs that we've developed called um, antibody drug conjugates. What these are, <clears throat> are they're, they're proteins that we've developed that specifically target cancer cells. Uh, and attached to this protein that targets the cancer cell is a very powerful chemotherapy that, that locally delivers the chemotherapy to the cancer cell. Um, the most, the, the most well-studied drug in this setting right now for bladder cancer is called infortimab vidotin. Um, and it's been approved um, in, this, in, in the third-line setting for a little while yet for people who, who have progressed through um, chemotherapy and who have progressed through immunotherapy. We've been using um, infortimab vidotin in those cases. But just recently, just a month or two ago, um, the FDA approved the combination of uh, infortimab vidotin and pembrolizumab uh, for patients who have not been treated uh, for bladder cancer uh, and who are una unable to uh, get platinum-based chemotherapy. I think that's been a very, very welcome addition to our arsenal against cancer. And I think it's something that, you know, I, I've had a lot of good success with in some of my patients. I've been impressed with how amazing the 
growth of the armament of drugs we have for patients with bladder cancer. Um, I've, even since I've finished fellowship, I feel like there's been just an explosion. And then moving those drugs that were effective after you failed, you know, after after these other regiments have failed, and now moving those to the first line uh, has really been remarkable. So keep up all the good work. I, I know it, we owe it all to you, Dr. Halpert, but it's pretty impressive nonetheless. So for the next section here, um, I want to talk a little bit about clinical trials. Obviously, you know, research is integral in oncology. Uh, we don't make progress in improving our offerings to patients unless we have clinical trials, uh, unless we have new drugs and, and how to sequence those drugs. So I guess I'll start with you, Dr. Arcot. Is there anything either new in the clinical trial landscape or something that you think is exciting that's going to come out um, in terms of management of localized bladder cancer or kind of however you want to interpret that from a urologic oncologic perspective? I think um, certainly we're uh, being at an academic institution with a with an incredible cancer center, uh, the Benson Gill and Tom Benson Cancer Center. I mean, we have the opportunity to to have clinical trials available to to our patients, and um, you know specifically in the in the non muscle vasopressor bladder cancer state, and th- this is the, the the spot that we're trying to be most aggressive because this is where we we win the war against bladder cancer. We we prevent it from progressing to the muscle. Um, we're working on more and more different delivery options of intravesical therapy. Um, so for the last 30 years, the primary medicine that was instilled into into the bladder was called BCG, which was a uh, attenuated live tuberculosis vaccine that actually act- activated your own immune system to kill the, the cancer cells that were remaining. Um, we have then progressed to chemotherapy, and uh, we started with a single agent like gemcitabine. Now we're doing doublet agents, gemcitabine and docetaxel. Um, I think the, the next step is going to be probably triplet therapy, which has shown some really interesting promise in those patients who maybe broke through their BCG or broke through their gemcitabine and had a recurrence. Um, we currently have a clinical trial on board using a novel agent called paclitaxel, which is attached to another agent that's a little bit more scientific and, and in the weeds. But the that drug is being used in those patients who have been treated with BCG, which has been the gold standard of the mainstay and so effective for so long and have had a recurrence. And we've found that this has um, very promising results in, in salvaging these patients, keeping them from having to have their bladders removed. We're also working to, to open up another trial using a novel agent uh, that takes uh, gemcitabine and actually turns it into a, um, a pretzel, um, which is a, a, a slow-acting uh, delivery system. And, and this, this pretzel is actually placed within the bladder um, through, a, a, through a small telescope down the urine channel, and it, it delivers this chemotherapy over an extended period of time. Mm. And that dwell time of bathing the bladder in this medicine for for you know more than just sixty minutes or thirty minutes is what really causes a durable response and decrease in recurrence. And so we're always looking to increase our our clinical trial portfolio and and you know push the limits in what we can do to help patients uh, keep their bladders. Dr. Halpert, what about for the advanced stage? You know, either you know stage four or muscle invasive, however you want to uh, take that. Any you know ongoing clinical trials, recent stuff that's coming out. I know you mentioned that, and and fortumab, vedotin plus pembrolizumab as a first line for platinum ineligible patients. Obviously, very exciting. Um, anything else that's on the horizon or being looked at? Yeah, across the board, I, I think there is a lot of interest in in trying to see how we can incorporate these really effective. Um, new medications that we have in later line therapy into earlier line treatment, as you mentioned. Um, so 
particularly in the um, neoadjuvant space, you know, before bladder uh, cancer resection, how can we utilize things like immunotherapy? Uh, how can we utilize things like these antibody drug tar uh, conjugates? Um, are very, very active areas of research right now. And I think we eagerly await the results of these trials to see how we can better serve our patients. Um, you know, certainly those are, are very attractive areas to get patients into clinical trials right now. Um, you know, we're always turning, you know, as, as a, you know, a very active cancer center, we're always kind of turning over and working with pharmaceutical companies trying to get, um, you know, newer uh, clinical trials in, into play here. Um, we don't have one of those open right now uh, in, in the advanced bladder cancer space, but, you know, we're always looking for opportunities to get these in. I think in the later line stage, the use of targeted therapy is going to be very, very important. And, you know, at Auctioner, we're fortunate to have, you know, the Precision uh, Cancer Therapeutics Program. Pretty sure you're familiar with that, Dr. Mizrahi. I am. Um, and so that's a, a very big benefit uh, for our patients where we can actually, um, you know, utilize things like, uh, you know, genetic uh, genomic profiling of the cancers to try to figure out if there's early phase clinical trials for our patients who have progressed through multiple lines of therapy. And, you know, especially if you're getting to the point where, you know, you've progressed through chemotherapy or immunotherapy and you've talked to somebody like me and gone through, you know, uh, genomic profiling, uh, I will definitely get you into our PTCP program and really offer you the latest, um, you know, uh, cutting edge treatments that are available. Great. For a recurring segment, what can I do to decrease my risk for bladder cancer? I'm going to address that to you, Dr. Arcott. What can I do to decrease my risk for developing bladder cancer? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that uh, the first step is obviously if you're using any form of tobacco, whether that's smoking cigarettes or um, chewing tobacco, um, that the first step is to stop. And and we know and, and certainly we, we understand or empathize with our patients that this can be a very challenging feat. And um, if you come to Oshner, we, we can certainly plug you into numerous providers and counselors um, who can help you with this with both you know, nicotine replacement as well as psychological help to, to help decrease uh, your use of tobacco. Uh, the, the next biggest thing is really just listening to yourself and your body. I mean, if you are having urgency, you know, got to go, got to go, can't make it to the bathroom on time, frequency, going many times during the day, feeling like you have a urinary tract infection or having burning with urination and you're not prone to getting UTIs, got to go see somebody. Um, and certainly, you know, if you see blood in the urine or a doctor tells you they might have seen blood in your urine on a test, got to get in to see your urologist and at least have an evaluation or a discussion about what diagnostic tests might be important for you moving forward and and um, and go from there. And and lastly, you know, it, in the in the modern era of precision medicine where we're using cancer genetics and genomics and genomic profiling and and things of that nature, knowing your family's cancer history is critical to helping doctors identify you for a particular genetic test or germline screening or whatever it may be to to help target cancer therapy better. And and at Oshner, we actually have a number of um, genetic counselors who work with our teams, and we refer people to them to talk about everything from what would a genetic test look like, what's it impact on me, my family, how's it performed, so on and so forth. So, yeah, so much so that they they actually sit on our tumor boards, and you know we're talking about you know surgical management and oncologic management, and they'll chime in and be like, hey, don't forget, you need to send that person. I read through their history, and they're 
their mom and uncle had, you know, such and such cancer, they need to be screened for genetics. And, you know, sometimes we miss those things and they'll bring those patients in, counsel them, potentially screen them for genetic testing, find something that they had no idea existed in their in, in their bloodline that they could pass on to their family members. So I think they're uh, uh, invaluable members of our team. Absolutely. For our next recurring segment, how do we treat bladder cancer at Oshner? So Dr. Halbert, I'll pose that question to you. Most of the time when, when you're coming to attention, um, you know, before your diagnosis of bladder cancer, it's, it's you know, coming through uh, the development of blood in your urine, being picked up by your primary care doctor or maybe an urgent care, uh, and oftentimes getting you in to see a urologist, um, you know, seeing that initial uh, cystoscopy procedure that, that Dr. Arcot was talking about. Uh, and then once, once we see that initial diagnosis of, of cancer there in the bladder, um, oftentimes will be ref these patients will be referred into our multidisciplinary clinics um, where they can see um, you know a, a oftentimes a urologist who deals specifically with cancer like dr. Arcot does uh, and then if they need to you know they'll be kind of uh, co-seen that same day um, with a medical oncologist like myself and if if needed also a radiation oncologist um, so we're really trying to increase our access into these sorts of multidisciplinary clinics I think it's important um, in a way to really be uh, uh, patient-centered in that way, to, to try to um, make things as easy as possible for our patients um, as, as they navigate this diagnosis. Um, speaking of which, if you're trying to navigate this diagnosis, um, you will be talking to one of our uh, fantastic cancer navigators. I don't know if I can name drop them, but you'll probably be talking to Kelly. Um, and she's fantastic. I have not yet met a patient who did not love her as she got everything coordinated um, for their initial, you know, multi-D visit. All of our navigators are great, not just Kelly, <laughs> but Kelly deals with bladder cancer. <laughs> That's why I mentioned her. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, they've been a, a, a huge and invaluable resource for us. Uh, and we, of course, have, you know, weekly tumor boards where um, we all sit down at lunchtime, but they do usually feed us. Um, so uh, where we talk about, you know, some of our more uh, difficult cases or cases that really um, require significant uh, coordination between different medical providers. Um, you know, we just had it today, Tuesday at noon, so I got to see Dr. Arcot there. Uh, and, and we make really good plans for our patients there. And, you know, we also just learn a lot, kind of talking to our different uh, colleagues there. I think another really good thing that we've mentioned here, you guys have mentioned the really good use of uh, cancer genetic screening uh, here at Ochsner. Um, including, you know, the, the genetic counselors and they have their dedicated, you know, high-risk cancer genetics clinic um, who, you know, can help screen these patients but also formulate screening uh, programs for patients who have known genetic uh, um, conditions. Uh, and then finally, another thing that's been very helpful, again, we've, we've mentioned it before about this genomic profiling or really looking at the cancer DNA and what's driving the cancer. Um, you know, here in Louisiana, through the efforts of a group called CAGLA, um, they've really been able to push through uh, the Louisiana legislature some tools for uh, oncologists across the state to get easy access to um, uh, profiling these cancers so that we don't run into hangups uh, with insurance coverage and things like that. So I think that's been one of the most amazing things that I've seen come through. Um, well, it's probably one of the most amazing things I've seen come through the Louisiana legislature. Um, <laughs> in a while, but it's been very helpful. And I really do appreciate the efforts of, of everybody involved in that. Great. For an extra recurring segment, what should I ask my oncologist uh, at my first appointment? So Dr. Arcot, 
when a patient first sees you with a diagnosis of bladder cancer, what should they be asking you? I think that, um, you know, first and foremost, you know, they've got to find which bucket they fall into. And, and the two buckets really are non-muscle invasive bladder cancer or muscle invasive bladder cancer. I think all of the discussions going forward really stem from there. Um, once you've identified, you know, what what bucket you fall into, I think it really comes down to a personalized approach in terms of what the treatment strategy needs to be. Um, certainly, um, the use of medicine in the bladder to prevent recurrence and progression is, is the mainstay in the non-muscle invasive uh, state, and that's typically where we start. You know, I think asking your doctor, you know, what's that going to look like? How does that process work? How often will I come? How is the medicine given? You know, getting these nitty-gritty details are are really important. I think patients sometimes feel like they can't ask enough questions, and we're always open to any question. No question is stupid, and, you know, despite the fact that there is limited time in the day, we are always trying to be available for our patients. And, you know, if they do fall into the muscle invasive bladder cancer state, you know, I think it's... It's a it's a discussion about well which doctors am I going to see you know talking about seeing a medical oncologist for discussions about chemotherapy, and then lastly really getting down to you know patient desires and wishes about cancer control coupled with well what's life going to look like for me after surgery because if it's not the kind of life that that person wants to lead then maybe you know chemotherapy in the vein with radiation therapy is the right answer um, now. You know, cancer control might be, you know, um, might take a little bit of a back seat, but maybe the, you know, functional outcomes or the way life is going to look like after that treatment is better for the patient. And that's what's most important. So I think it's it's coming up with a personalized treatment strategy based on cancer control and what life's going to look like for me after treatment. That's great. And for a surgeon to tell you that, you know, you want to personalize it and offer you potentially a non-surgical approach, if that's not going to fit with that person's preferences. I think that's a pretty pretty awesome thing to, to discuss with your patient. So kudos to you. For a final recurring segment, fact or fiction? Dr. Arcott, I want you to tell me, is this fact or fiction? I have blood in my urine, so I probably have bladder cancer. Fact or fiction? Fiction. Care to expound? Yeah. So... Um just because you have blood in your urine does, doesn't mean you have bladder cancer. There are a number of benign reasons for having uh, blood in your urine, kidney stones, infections, enlarged prostates, um, cystitis of different kind that can be associated with um, female bladders in particular. Um, so it, it's not a, I have blood in my urine and I will have cancer. Now, seeing physical blood in your urine, not one that's seen on just a urine sample test, is a does have an increased risk of identifying bladder cancer, but that risk is really somewhere between 30 and 50%. So it's really not as high as one would think, but it's high enough that it makes it important to be evaluated. Great. Uh, Dr. Halbert, this is for you and, and anyone that wasn't paying attention to this podcast. I have stage four bladder cancer, and I heard there are no good treatments, fact or fiction. Oh, goodness. Uh, I'm going to go with fiction. Can I try to denigrate my entire life's work there, John? <laughs> no, I, I, obviously, um, you know, it's a tough diagnosis, um, admittedly, um, but the number of uh, pr- uh, the amount of progress that's been made over the last five years is just absolutely astounding. If I can just imagine what additional uh, things are going to come out in the next five years, we have no idea. Um, but it's important to remember, too, you know, I have many patients uh, who have metastatic bladder cancer and they are living with their cancer. They are continuing to have normal lives and they are continuing to do the things that they they love and they enjoy. 
I tell patients, you know, all the time, like this is something that, you know, you are not dying of this cancer right now. You are living with this cancer. We have it under control. And this is oftentimes, you know, a, a disease that we can measure on the order of years, um, oftentimes. So. Great. Fiction it is. Uh, Dr. Arcot, this one's for you. I was diagnosed with bladder cancer, so I'm going to have to have my bladder removed. Fact or fiction? Yeah. Uh... <laughs> So that would be fiction. Um, unfortunately, you know, uh, it's a tough pill to swallow for, for a surgeon. You know, certainly that, that's what we did all the training for was to be able to help uh, cure people of their cancer with uh, with the knife. But um, at the end of the day, um, as we talked about or alluded to briefly, I mean, uh, radical cystectomy or removal of the bladder is a, is a big surgery. Um, it's certainly not something to be taken lightly. And the reconstruction can be um, also very complicated and technically challenging and require, you know, extreme skill. And, and so for certain patients, you know, that's just maybe not something that they want and they can't see themselves living their life with maybe a bag on, on their belly with urine in it or, you know, not having their bladder and having to have a neobladder um, and dealing with some of the issues and nuances with that. And so at the end of the day, you know, we've come a long way with chemotherapy and radiation and research in that field. And, um, and certainly radiation with maximal resection of the bladder tumor along with chemotherapy has proven, at least in the short term, to have good outcomes in muscle-based bladder cancer. And we're still waiting on that long-term data, but um, but it might be the right answer for the right patient. Great. All right. Last one's for you, Dr. Halbert. I have two siblings who have been diagnosed with bladder cancer, so I should consider genetic testing. Fact or fiction? Fact. I think it's you know it's 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 very important um, that we can identify these sorts of familial uh, cancer syndromes um, and, and you know we, we we send patients to the genetic counselors quite a bit um, you know whether it's in, in in bladder cancer but also oftentimes in prostate cancer and other cancer that Dr. Arcot and I treat treat quite a bit um, and and it's very important to identify these sorts of cancer syndromes for for a few different reasons and this is what I tell my patients number one it's important for for the patient to know. Um, you know, if you have a, a high-risk bladder cancer uh, uh, syndrome, you should know because you might need to be screened in different ways and you might be at risk for other cancers. Like if you have Lynch syndrome, you could be at risk for colorectal cancer or if you're a woman, you could be at risk for uterine cancer um, and, and you might need to be screened in different ways. It's also very important for your family to know for obvious reasons. Um, so, you know, you may have siblings or you may have, you know, children who need to be screened appropriately. But I think an important thing, too, that, that gets lost on, on people, too, is it's important for your medical oncologist to know because if you have a, a certain gene that's driving a cancer, um, oftentimes there are certain medications that we can use that may be more or less effective in that, in that setting. Um, so, you know, and we wouldn't know unless, unless we tested. Um, so if there's a high risk for something like a Lynch syndrome, you absolutely should get tested. Fact. I think that's the first fact I've had in – the entire history of doing these podcasts. So I, I threw it in as a curveball. It's not a difficult question. You, you nailed it. Listen, so, you know, in my line of work as a GI medical oncologist, I always tell people to pay attention to their poop. I think after today, I'm going to be paying a lot of attention to my pee. And I'll, I'll leave us with that. So Dr. Arcot, Dr. Halbert, look, I'm, I'm proud to call you colleagues and friends. And I appreciate you coming on and talking about bladder cancer with me. I feel like this was a, a great conversation. I, I learned a lot and uh, I hope uh, you enjoyed it as well. And I hope it's uh, helpful for our patients. Great. Happy yeah. to be here. Absolutely. Can't wait to do it again. So if you or someone in your family has been diagnosed with bladder cancer, I hope this episode can give you some guidance on the diagnosis, evaluation, and treatment options available. 
the Ochsner Bladder Cancer Treatment Team uses a collaborative, multidisciplinary approach to treatment of patients across all stages of disease with the latest surgical, radiation, and medical therapies to help patients not only survive, but thrive. We tailor our treatments to our individual patients and utilize the most up-to-date medical evidence to guide our recommendations. To schedule an appointment with a cancer specialist at Ochsner, go to my.ochsner.org. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. I'm Dr. Jonathan Mizrahi with the Ochsner Cancer Institute. I'll see you next time on the All In Against Cancer podcast.